Some years ago, my father-in-law established contact with relatives in Germany. I've seen pictures, and they are a beautiful family. In fact, they still have the original home place where my wife's great-grandfather lived. No one is in trouble, and they are getting along fine. But even if God asked me, I am not moving halfway around the world. Sorry, but it just ain't happening. They probably don't speak English, and I wouldn't have a job. And besides, I'm quite happy right here where I am. Moses, I'm with you. Lord, surely you can find someone else to go. What would it take to be convinced that you should quit your job, pack up your family, and go back to a foreign country where your relatives are being held captives as slaves? And God wants you to go confront that foreign dictator and demand freedom. What would it take? What would God have to do to prove to you that you are the one God is calling? A couple of miracles? Something more than a burning bush? Yeah, sure, God, I believe, but I really don't believe. This section of the book of Exodus, chapters 4 through the end of chapter 6, is the continuation of the conversation between God and Moses that began at the burning bush. The first word of this part of Exodus tells the reader what this section is about from start to finish. In chapter 4, the first word spoken by Moses, but. Moses says he believes, but deep down he really doesn't believe. But, objected Moses, suppose... Three of the first four words of this chapter are but, objected, suppose, which tells us what Moses really feels. On a 1 to 10 confidence scale, Moses is coming in at about a 2. I hear you, God, but it's just not working. Now, I may be wrong, but I believe that this kind of faith that Moses has is much more common than what we would like to think. We do believe in God, and we do have faith. But if each of us were to be tested in the way that Moses was tested, would most of us use the same words found in Exodus? But, objected, suppose? Moses was probably quite comfortable in Midian with his wife's family. His in-laws were likely very happy to have their daughter Zipporah at home with the grandchild Gershom. Daddy-in-law probably fixed up Moses with his first flock of sheep and loaned him a few acres of land to get started. Life was probably very good in Midian until that burning bush popped up out of nowhere. No wonder Moses has reservations about this plan that God is presenting. God has got to convince Moses of the task at hand. He is needed to go back to Egypt and inspire the Israelite slaves not to give up hope. Many times history has taught us that slavery can kill people, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually. God needed someone to give the Hebrew slaves hope in their dire state of life in Egypt. Although Moses doesn't realize it, He is the right person for the leadership role of the Hebrew people. Moses was raised in the house of an earlier Pharaoh, so he is likely 
to have an inside track that could help him navigate the bureaucracy of the Pharaoh's administration. Moses would be the one Hebrew person that would be able to make direct contact with the ruler. In other words, Moses has some special gifts, talents, and blessings available to him that can help others, but he just doesn't realize it yet. Once, a friend asked me to be a board member of a small nonprofit. The next thing I know, I'm the board president. I discover the organization is broke and it's our busiest time of the year. Wait a minute, I was just trying to help a friend by being on the board. God had a plan for me and I unknowingly answered the call to be part of the plan. I was being asked to use my gifts in unexpected ways. Although it wasn't what I had in mind, it was apparently part of God's plan because everything worked out for the good of the organization. Belief and trust factors are sometimes very difficult to find when our life appears to be going in a different direction. It is through prayer and reflection that we can see that God was there with us the entire time. Moses is having a hard time with believing and trusting, and so his brother Aaron is brought into the picture to assist, inspire, and build confidence in Moses. Like Moses, we sometimes have been blessed to live among truly inspirational leaders. We all need someone to lean on, someone to motivate us and to pick us up when we fall. Aaron is the one for Moses. Mary had Elizabeth. Naomi relied on Ruth. Spouses have each other. Children have parents. Athletes have coaches. Friends, family, counselors, ministers, and spouses are just a few people that we all rely on when we are in need. Aaron somehow motivates Moses to not only believe in God, but to believe in himself which makes Moses a better instrument through whom God can work. But Moses still doesn't fully believe. After Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai, he returns to his father-in-law and asks for his permission to return to my kindred in Egypt to see whether they are still living. Scripture tells us that Jethro's reply to Moses' request is, Go in peace. Now, two things about this exchange between Moses and Jethro. One, Moses is still not convinced about his call from God because he doesn't even tell Jethro the real reason for his return to Egypt. He said he's going back to check on family. He's not going back to check on the kinfolks. God has clearly laid out the plan for Moses to go and confront Pharaoh and lead the Hebrew people out of Egypt. So Moses doesn't reveal the real reason for his leaving Midian. Now the second thing about this exchange, Jethro is the one who truly believes and trusts in God. You know, at first glance, Jethro seems to be just part of the supporting cast to assist Moses in his call here at Sinai. But Jethro will make another appearance again in chapter 18 to assist Moses after he has led the Hebrews out of Egypt. But if we take a closer look, 
Jethro actually gives a far better example of faithfulness than Moses. First, Jethro accepted Moses into his family after Moses fled Egypt. Moses was a foreigner from a tribe of slaves who was on the run from Egypt and somehow turns up in Midian. Surely he never told Jethro why he fled Egypt, as he can't even tell him the truth about why he wants to return. Now, no one really knows how it happened, but I think Jethro probably took this alien in, gave him shelter and work. And sometime later, he even allowed him to marry his daughter Zipporah. After helping Moses get on his feet and get his family started, Moses then asked Jethro for permission to leave with his daughter and grandson. None of this makes any logical sense. After everything Jethro had done for Moses, and now he wants to leave. I know my response would be more like, what? After everything I've done for you, and now you just want to walk out on us? But scripture tells us that Jethro replied, go in peace. Not just go or leave, but go in peace. Apparently, Jethro had given his blessing for Moses, Zipporah, and Gershom to leave. Jethro was at peace with what was happening. Do you think maybe he had some feeling about what might really be going on? Perhaps God had spoken to Jethro as well. On the return trip to Egypt, we have this scene in verses 24 through 26. On the journey at a place where they spent the night, the Lord came upon Moses and sought to put him to death. But Zipporah took a piece of flint and cut off her son's foreskin and, touching his feet, she said, Surely you are a spouse of blood to me. So God let Moses alone. At that time, she said, a spouse of blood in regard to the circumcision. Well, let me just use the words of a few scripture scholars about this passage. Problematic, mysterious, intriguing, obscure, puzzling, inconsistent, complicated, opaque, and the list goes on. There is no single acceptable explanation of what is going on here. What's your take? It is a passage that is clearly out of place. Why God would choose Moses for a unique mission to confront Pharaoh and lead the Israelites from slavery and then threaten to kill Moses. The story flows logically if you just skip over verses 24 to 26. And I hate to admit this, but isn't it just the case with most of us married men that our wives cover for us more often than we care to admit? Moses' wife Zipporah does whatever it takes to cover for Moses and get him back on God's good side. This section concludes with God speaking to Aaron about assisting Moses. The elders of the Israelite community are gathered to hear about the mission of Moses as announced by God. It is interesting that the text states that Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. 
So perhaps Moses really did have some shortcomings in his public speaking skills. After hearing what Aaron said and seeing the signs that Moses performed, the people believed and bowed down in worship. Unlike Moses, who, after seeing the signs from God, still resisted in accepting God's call. Moses and Aaron finally present their request to Pharaoh to allow the Hebrew people to leave for three days to celebrate a sacrifice to their God Yahweh, which is quickly denied by Pharaoh, who then takes measures to further oppress the Hebrew people. And to add insult to injury, Pharaoh says he doesn't know who this Yahweh is. Then Pharaoh shows what an outstanding oppressor he really is. He completely turns the tables and blames the victims of the oppression. Pharaoh states, they are lazy. That is why they are crying, let us go to offer sacrifice to our God. Increase the work for the men so that they attend to it and not to deceitful words. Pharaoh was presented with a simple request by Moses and Aaron, yet he now blames the Hebrew people for being lazy, not working hard enough, and having too much idle time to be thinking about worshiping their God. Pharaoh also uses the divide-and-conquer technique on the Hebrews by using Hebrew foremen to force even crueler conditions. While the quota of bricks remained the same, the Hebrew slaves now had to gather the straw for the bricks which was previously supplied. A most difficult situation is made even worse. Moses and Aaron get blamed by the Hebrew people for making things worse. And then Moses blames God for treating the Hebrew people so bad. Can things get any worse? Well, the answer is actually yes. As you will see later in Exodus, the Israelites will look back on their situation and think things weren't so bad. Most of chapter 6 should sound pretty familiar, except for the genealogy section. It is the priestly version of the call of Moses. It is a little more direct conversation between God and Moses with no dickering back and forth. The purpose of the genealogy section that follows seemed to provide the reader with proof that the Levite tribe that will provide priests to the Israelite people is descended from Aaron. Moses will not pass on his prophetic office to his descendants, so the genealogy does not focus on him. After Moses blames God for the predicament of the Hebrew people, God responds differently than when Moses questioned his call. In the fourth chapter, God was frustrated when Moses used every excuse he could to turn God down. But after being blamed for the Hebrews' plight, God simply comforts Moses. The God of the covenant with the Hebrews is aware of their suffering and promises relief, protection, and a secure future. Moses' faith in God has been shaken to its core, and God gently assures Moses that things are going to be okay. 
How often have we found ourselves in the midst of a serious crisis alone, a Gethsemane moment, a feeling abandoned by everyone? And then we realize that God is there with us. As I look back on the times that my life took twists and turns, I doubted and questioned, and even at times I prayed. But I also can easily see God's hand guiding and directing me. I know now more than ever, my life has been part of God's plan. And without my faith in God, regardless of how consistent or inconsistent it has been over the years, things would have been different. God has made a difference in my life. While I am confident that God's hand continues to direct my life, I still have doubts. As our children have transitioned from their teen years to young adulthood, their issues and life choices are my Moses moments. College roommates, employment, boyfriends, girlfriends, fiancés, living arrangements, financial issues. Does the list ever stop? The issues of their teen years have only gotten larger and long distance. And I thought raising children was supposed to be getting easier. What I have to remember is that my Moses moments have to become Jethro's faithfulness and understanding moments. So often, I want to make my plan God's plan. But I must remember that God's plan must become my plan. Now, the majority of this section has been about faith, trust, and belief in the plan of God. And the focus of my words has been about how the chosen leader, Moses, had very little faith. However, now allow me to counter what I said. Moses had more faith than he thought he had. You see, Moses did accept God's plan. And at times, yes, he complained, protested, objected, and questioned. And he probably drug his feet. But ultimately, Moses said yes. I have had similar experiences. And it is very likely that most of you have had those experiences as well. At times when our lives take unexpected direction or we encounter a dilemma, we turn to prayer. In our prayer, we ask God for strength, for wisdom, knowledge, insight, direction, and yes, faith. And as a result of our prayer, we use our God-given talents and gifts to consider the possibility the pros and the cons, the advantages and the disadvantages. We often will consult a family member or a friend, an errand for assistance. Then we decide on a plan. We might still wonder and question, but for the most part, we continue to follow what we will later call God's plan. And when we call it God's plan, we are being faithful servants relying on our faith in God.